Welcome to Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. I'm your host, Frank Granger, Minister of Christian Community. What is your current relationship and experience with church or a community of faith? How does that compare with your experience as a child and adolescent? Our Fall 2022 podcast series features one-on-one conversations with seven members of First Baptist Athens. They share their experiences and views about these questions and others in our conversations about church, God, and the pandemic. The conversations are rich with stories, inspiration, discoveries, and surprises. This first podcast features my conversation with Jamie Hogan. Listen as we explore some of the intersections of faith and life. Joining me on our podcast today for our conversations is Jamie Hogan. Jamie, I'm really glad that you're here. This will be fun having a conversation with you. Not like we've not had a conversation before. True. I'm very excited to be here. We've just never recorded our conversation. It, it's a risk. It is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I were to formally introduce you, I would introduce you as Dr. Jamie Hogan, would I not? That is correct. So tell me, what is your doctorate in? So my doctorate is in English education. Essentially, my work focuses on our secondary educational policies and practices in the field of English. So I work with students who want to become English teachers um, at the middle or high school level, and then also work with graduate students um, as they pursue higher degrees. You now work at the university. I'm now at the university, and um, prior to that, I spent 15 years in the Clark County School District um, in different capacities, teacher, instructional coach, assistant principal, very good. Now, mm-hmm. you haven't always been a Hogan. I have not always been a Hogan. When did, um, when did you uh, marry into the Hogan world? I had the pleasure of marrying into the Hogan world uh, May 30th of 2015. Very good. To the one and only John Hogan. To the one and only John Hogan, who is quite the chef. He is quite the chef, among his other many talents. How did he get involved in chefery? I don't know. I have to give all the credit to Arlene Hogan, I think, because she is the best Southern cook. Um, And Trish and I laugh a lot because we're we're very lucky that we married men raised by Arlene Hogan (laughs) that are so good in the kitchen. Very Um, good. I don't know how lucky they are to have us, but, you know, we do clean up pretty well. (laughs) Uh, One other person in your family, in the Hogan household, who is that? Yes, we have a three-year-old, James Boyce Hogan, who is every bit a Hogan. I think he's 99 percentile across the board. Yeah, he looks, just to see his picture and to see him walking in, he looks like he is much older than three. Yeah, um, Matt Marston asked him Sunday when we were leaving church when... uh, when Kirby was going to start start <laughs> recruiting, so we're waiting on the call, Kirby. Very good. Well, that would 
keep a good tradition alive too. It would, wouldn't we, it? We have some Hogan football players for sure. Certainly do Hogan uh, University of Georgia football players. That's as well. right, James Boyce's papa and um, his uncle Andy. Yeah, that's really cool. Proud Bulldogs. One of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is uh, the spirituality uh, tradition that you grew up with in your childhood. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. So I grew up Presbyterian, very proudly Presbyterian. My paternal grandmother was a devout Christian. Uh, my dad talks about them being at, at the Presbyterian church that he grew up in in Warner Robins, Georgia, and they basically spent most of the days of the week at that church. So being a Presbyterian, growing up in Milledgeville, Georgia, the church was a very important part of my my childhood up, up through early high school. The one and only uh, Reverend Bill Morgan, who now resides in Florida, he was our our minister, he's also who married uh, John and me, oh. and he just had a very special way of of reaching a congregation and focusing on the teachings of Jesus Christ and and putting those into context for whatever we were living through as a society at the time. So. Unfortunately, that was not always well-received by, by some louder voices in the church. I wouldn't say the majority, but I would say, you know, sometimes it's really just about who is the loudest. That I think that that was unsettling for folks. Um, they weren't ready to make, make that connection between, you know, our lived reality and maybe what we should be doing differently according to those teachings. So, unfortunately... His tenure at that church ended about, I want to say I was around 10th grade in high school, and I remember it because it felt like a death in our family. Oh, wow. It was just deeply, deeply unsettling that this place and this individual could be so mistreated and and so misunderstood and you know, that be that, and, you know, now it was time to find a new minister. So for us, you know, I can't speak for everyone in the congregation, but there was a core, you know, group of, of families and, and children that were about my age at the time, too, who, you know, to this day seek him out for all of the, the big moments in our lives. And, you know, he just really understood the beloved community and, what we were all charged to do within that community. And, you know, we, we all gravitated towards him, and I, st- I still do to this day. But, yeah, that, that was a really significant, when I look back on my spiritual growth and, and think back along my journey in, in a religious capacity and think about my faith journey, that that, that, was, that was a moment that, that was, there was just a deep chasm at that point in time. Sounds really significant. Yeah. I think it is 
I think it's common to a degree that there are individuals in our life that become very catalytic. The community around you, I'm sure, was very formative right. in your religious experience. But I think even within that, there's a person many times or a few people who become really catalytic in bringing that together. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put that. I think between my my granny, um, who was my father's mother, my own parents, and bringing me into that church in Milledgeville and that connection with Reverend Morgan, I mean, I would say those are the four catalysts for for my own journey. Very good. Yeah, it's a really great way to put that. Yeah, it also becomes a little challenging to us because we begin to think, do I need to be that for other people? Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to put this. You know, I think that whole experience gets at what I think we hear about, you know, the the supposed shrinking of the the Christian church in America and and these kinds of things and what we saw play out with Reverend Morgan at least from my perspective as an adolescent, was that, well, it seems pretty obvious when you look at the teachings, like, what we should at least all be striving for, and how could this be controversial? But yet, when we look at the rise in white Christian nationalism and and these dangerous ideologies, you see how someone could be completely turned off by the church if that is what their experience as the church is representing. Yeah, and have nothing else to counter that. Right. So that kind of leads into coming into to the Hogan family. I didn't have a, a, a church home in, in Athens. I taught in Athens for several years at that, at that time and had very much loved being part of the community, and then meeting John Hogan and actually getting back into the routine of coming to a place for church, not listening to Reverend Morgan's old sermons <laughs> on a cassette tape, um, <laughs> which... And you actually had something to play the I have the several. On? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Guilty. So all the credit to to John Hogan and the Hogan family for, first of all, welcoming me into their family with open arms and then bringing me into this church family that that has equally been a very welcoming, um, accepting place to be. So it leads me to ask, what is it that drew you here to this church in in addition to the Hogan family? Oh, sure, because at first I thought, oh, John loves music. We love football. Oh, he's he's a Baptist. <laughs> Did that give you pause? What am I going to do about that? No, kidding. <laughs> he was such a trooper. Like, we went to the Presbyterian Church right here up the street um, a couple of times. And, you know, he, he really made sure that this was the decision that I wanted to make um, and one that I was comfortable with in, in joining this church. And you have to remember, I grew up in Milledgeville, Georgia, where Baptist is different 
How so? So they're all very, um, and continue to be, as far as I know, steeped in the Southern Baptist convention and and those ideologies that come with that. So that was just not something I was interested in and being a part of. And then being a reader, being a researcher, I start going down rabbit holes and finding out more and more about this church, the roles it has played during significant social movements and in welcoming, in quotes, the other, the outsider, the stranger, and listening to Paul Baxley just really resonated with me in a, in a space that had been a little dormant. So coming into this church community and, and connecting with people from all walks of life and all sorts of world experiences, the work that, that the church does with our daily bread, I just you know felt like this was just a very natural space for me to be. What were some of the things that you discovered in your reading and research that you uncovered about this church that got your attention? Well, so I was looking first. I was like, what is this CBF business? What does that mean? You know, so I get on that (laughs) rabbit hole of of just kind of the history of the, the CBF and breaking off from the Southern Baptist Convention. So to me, that signified a more progressive way of interpreting Jesus' teachings and how that manifests itself in the church, in the day-to-day practices of the church. This church has an interesting history during integration and um, during the civil rights movement. That There's just a lot of unique stories that just really underscore what this church is about and that it's, it's going to constantly evolve and it, it's not scared to evolve and make progress and shift where shift is needed to better exemplify, you know, the teachings and and the love of Jesus Christ. We comment often about the history that Ernie Hines put together, particularly how he titled it. And he titled it Always Becoming New, Mm -hmm. which is a simple title, but from his reading and research and writing with everything, obviously this sense of evolving and w- with a very forward, intentional identity came through. And I think, you know, I think it gets at, too, the importance of evolving as a faith community and also not taking ourselves too seriously and thinking about how we engage with the Bible as a text. So I remember one of the sermons Paul Baxley gave, I can't remember exactly what it was titled, but he was talking about, you know, the difference between something being biblical and something being Christian and that those are two distinctly different things right? Like we can go back to that plenty of different lines of text in the Bible and realize that that's not at all connected to, to who we are as, as Christians, as a faith, that the Bible is an elevated spiritual sort of folklore, right? Where, you know, there are all these rich stories and characters and 
parables and there's poetry and there are all these this language to learn from, but within context, you know, and thinking about the time in which it was written and what the social parameters were at the time it was written and or spoken, a lot of it was, you know, derived orally. And then what do we do with that in present day and how do we how do we make those shifts to to where we are now as a people of faith? You grew up Presbyterian. You've landed in a Baptist church. Yes. What's similar here? What do you find that's similar in mm. your experience here, and what's different? What stands out as different? You know, I don't know. It almost feels like I've come full circle because it, I guess for, for me, the church is always just kind of a structure and a building, but the people within it are what bring it to life and you know, make it a place of possibility. So I very much felt that during our time in the Presbyterian Church in Milledgeville. You know, we'd go to church on Sunday evenings, like James Boyce goes to church on Sunday evenings now. Um, His father and I need to come to Sunday school more. Uh, Those are things that I I watched my parents do as, as I grew up in the church. I really appreciate... As progressive as I am in some parts of my life, I really appreciate the the traditional aspects of this church the way I appreciate the traditional aspects of my my church in Milledgevilles. You know, we start at 11 and we end at 12. There are not multiple services. There's not a rock band up front. Like, I really appreciate that, that certain things are similar in that regard. Yeah. I've been reading some stuff about improvisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Wells, who is currently a vicar at St. Martin's in the Field. Mm-hmm. He was previously at the Dean of Duke Chapel Okay, um, in the early 2000s. He's written quite a bit of stuff, but some of what he's written about is improvisation. One of the points that he makes is that improvisation is not just being clever and funky and new mm-hmm. and off the cuff. Mm-hmm. It's really based in knowing your tradition. You have to know the tradition before you can really improvise on it. Right. I like to think about, hopefully, that we have a good blend here. We do. Um, I would agree with that. And in being steeped in some tradition allows us to be innovative mm-hmm. and to try some new things. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair. Our work with um, our daily bread takes me back to some work that they did regularly with the Open Door community in Atlanta. They would bring the family members of those imprisoned on death row on their trek down to visit once a month. They would come through the Presbyterian Church in Milledgeville. And we would feed the families and join in fellowship with them. Um, This was like one Saturday a month. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so those connections, I mean, this church has that same heart and that same, that servant's heart that, that's really at the foundation, I feel like, of, of, of our faith. That those kind of things are similar. You mentioned the Bible being a collection of stories yes. and people. So tell me, what might be one of your favorite stories or characters in the Bible? 
So I, I wrote about this and, and shared during one of the early podcasts, but the story of Jesus's birth is one that I think carries through to the current moment so well. Um, it's, you know, the paradox of, of hope and hopelessness and the journey of the refugee and, you know, a teenage mother and just seeking out the resources that they need to, to live and to bring this, this baby boy into the world that's going to go on to do miraculous, radical things. I think we see that story play out time and time again each day within our own country, um, across the world, looking at Ukraine, looking at Yemen, looking at our own borders. I really think we all could benefit from revisiting that story more than just December each year because it it highlights so much of, you know, if, if we can find empathy and see that story play out or if we can find the empathy for Jesus and Mary and Joseph, that should easily translate to empathy and love and, and doing whatever we can for, for those in current horrific circumstances. You point out how it encourages us to see Jesus in the other. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is the other, right? You know, forget this pale-skinned, blue-eyed Christ figure that is just entirely manufactured. This is a Middle Eastern radical young man and I can't help but, but wonder how we would welcome him today. How I would welcome him today if he were in our midst. You know, you hear a lot of talk, particularly among the evangelical crew, about Jesus, please come soon, and Jesus is coming back. And, well, I feel like he'd be pretty bummed out. Yeah. I think he wants us to make a little more progress and maybe reread some things like the story of his birth, <laughs> kind of better understand what, what it's actually supposed to shape our faith. Yeah, spending a little more time in the Gospels would be helpful. A little bit, for sure. But yeah, that, that's one of my favorite stories. And Jesus' mother's Mary, and my mother's Mary, and she's everything. Mm. So there's That's a that nice, pair, nice that connection. Pair. Yep. Very good. Yep. Love our Marys. All right, here's a fun question. Fun question for you. If you have if you have the opportunity to take God to dinner, where would you take God? I believe my three year old's answer to this question was Chick fil A, so <laughs> we're gonna step it up a little bit. <laughs> and in this imaginative world, I would bring Harry Bissett's back to downtown Athens. Okay. And and God and I would go there and have some, some oysters Rockefeller and And some she crab soup. Yes, and solve all the problems of the world. So what would be your topic of conversation? Oh, what boy. would you want your topic of conversation to start with? 
That's hard. I mean, I think just as God probably hears in my prayers at least is doing more for our children so that our world is a a more a more peaceful, um, healthy place for them to thrive. I really think the children are are where it starts and what matter most in terms of our faith, in terms of children always get it right, I feel like. You know, it's it's the adults that, that taint the taint the water a bit and shift their perspectives in ways that aren't Christian like. I say that and <laughs> stand by while we raise James Boyce. <laughs> <laughs> well, James Boyce was very enthusiastic about taking God to Chick fil A. Well, like my sister said, that's God's chicken. <laughs> he did not hesitate. That was clear. Yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt. I don't know what it says about us as parents. But <laughs> Chick-fil-A's really close by. He had no question in his mind at all. That's exactly where he would go. Well, and he clearly doesn't miss a meal. <laughs> I'm reminded about something that I read that Paul Torrance wrote Mm -hmm. uh, because he was so focused on children and very much believed that children were highly aware spiritually, Mm -hmm. theologically, you know, at an early age and taught them in that way. He made an indictment on the church. He said that usually by the time children are about five, the church has taught them to quit asking questions. Yeah, that makes me think about something John and I talk about um, in, in James Boyce's upbringing and what we want for him, and questioning is always okay. Yeah, I agree with Paul Torrance. The moment you shut that down, you, you, you limit and close off all of these opportunities for understanding in different ways. And I think, or I know, I'm not sure, <laughs> my dad's mother um, that I've spoken of, she she wasn't as big on the questions like this this is the way it is and you just have to have faith right yeah and that's fine um but my parents and and reverend morgan loved the questions like yeah let's let's talk about that and why is it that way and what does jesus tell us about you know this or that and how does that help our understanding how does that cloudy our understanding because, you know, when you're a child and you, you see injustice in the world, too, and you're trying to make sense of how that injustice is allowed to continue, someone just telling you that that's just part of God's plan or, or whatever that language may look like, that that's not very helpful in that child understanding the, the type of faith that we're actually all a part of. Yeah. Yeah, I hope he always asks questions even if it drives us berserk. Yeah. Ask the questions. Ask the questions. They're so important. Absolutely. And it's it's okay that there's not always a concrete answer. Yeah. You know, and being okay with that is sometimes counterintuitive to depending on our our faith journeys and and the churches we grew up in and you know, whoever raised us and all of that, but it really is okay that there's not always an answer. Questions about the wonder right, and the awe and 
even if there's not an answer, it, if you allow for that, you allow for the question and the fact that there may not be an answer, it still keeps the door open for seeking. Right. Well put. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. Mm. I really tend to look at this now as as a really major marker point in our lifetime, in the lifetimes of many. Mm-hmm. I suppose there were some, if I think back in my childhood, you know, in the 60s, there were some pretty significant marker points. Sure. We have that in each of our generations, and mm-hmm. this is going to continue to be one. And we really refer to things often as pre-COVID and post-COVID. Right. Which is confusing. <laughs> Pretty sure we're still in it. It's wishful thinking. It, I it, love the glass half full approach. <laughs> I really do. It presented us with incredible challenges in most every aspect of our life. Mm-hmm. We also found out that it provided for some discoveries and some opportunities. So from your perspective, as uh, you've been living it these last two and a half years, what are some of the things that have been discoveries for you? You know, I have to say that John and I and our families were very fortunate um, that nobody became seriously ill. So there's, there's that that colors my, my perspective some in that I was so grateful for the time at home with my husband and my child and this sort of simpler way of being. It just, in a lot of ways, it stripped away so much of the noise yeah. from our day-to-day hustle and bustle of our lives so on on that level, I think I think we've hung on to some of that too, like not completely filling your calendar up with with everything and it being okay to say no and having just a a more manageable pace in the day to day. And I think, you know, I know that the the Mr. Rogers quote about looking for the helpers has been used to a almost to a fault, but there were so many helpers. Yeah. I mean, the nurses and the doctors, they're still doing their thing over in the hospital, you know, out of sight. The educators, oh my goodness, the ones that were juggling, you know, their own children being at home and also trying to to educate other people's children. The churches coming, coming together and helping you know, in whatever way was, was practical. And, and you have to look at those things and, and value them, even in, in the midst of, of a dark and terrible time. It was some discovery of a resilience that we have as human beings mm-hmm. that maybe we had taken for granted. I think that's true. I do. Especially, like I said, those, you know, on the front line of it day in and day out. Um, And a lot of coming together to support those individuals. Yeah. I fear that our interests have 
have have waned some, <laughs> but during that time, there there was a large recognition of the impact and the value of educators, and a recognition of how undervalued they are. I wish that that call to to support them had continued as strongly. I, th- I still think it's there, but I think we can do more. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I was trying to keep it in that, that positive space of discovery um, because obviously the pandemic just highlighted so much of what we have still yet to to figure out and, and remedy as human beings, especially those as Christians. It really did have a way of highlighting some things that where our weaknesses were. Right. And are. Which in itself can be a, a discovery, right? Like yeah. we, we acknowledge that these things are just gaping black holes and we need to, we need to address this. And I think what is up to us and what the verdict is still out on is what do we do with those, those discoveries. Right. Yeah, what do we do with what we learned? We're going to build from it or just pretend that that was something in the past and we'll yeah. go back to doing what we thought was normal. Right. Hopefully the former. It gets a little heavy, doesn't it? I know. Let's do some fun questions. Okay. What was the most unusual job you've ever done? Oh. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Nobody can identify this person. I worked for a a blind man who sold Olympic memorabilia and also collected guns. How long did you do this job? Like three weeks. I mean... It was too much. How did you get this job? I don't know. I really don't know. But that is what led me to take this job at the Clark County School District in the front office that then, you know, morphed into my career as an educator. So I got to see it as like a a stepping stone (laughs) (laughs) of some sort. Uh, But, yeah, I think it was like an ad in the flagpole, so... You know. Oh, well, that is your way to start your novel. Always do the background checks on things. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I told my father, and he was like, yeah, you're not going back there. <laughs> I was like 20. Next question. Okay. Where have you never been that you want to go? Italy. Sean and I have never been to Italy, and it's, it's on our bucket list all over Italy. No place in particular. We'd love to go to Rome, see the Vatican. Yeah, we'd love to do that. You know, we got engaged in New Zealand. Now, that's another story, isn't it? I know. It's a fabulous story. So, I mean, we'd love to go back to New Zealand. We actually went to the North Island. We'd like to go back and go to the South Island. Is that all you're going to say about the engagement in New Zealand? Oh, no. Are you going to say a little more? <laughs> I'm surprised John Hogan already told you. So he loves 
in addition to being a, a wonderful chef, he loves to take photographs and do a lot with digital media, and is really talented in that regard. But I had a conference that I was I was in grad school. I had a conference I was presenting at in New Zealand, and of course he came with me, and I remember going through. TSA through security and he was so you know just would not let go of his tripod had to take his tripod with his camera I was like this is so ridiculous we have so much stuff we're already taking with us like get rid of the tripod whatever so the tripod becomes a very important part of the story because we go visit um we have a day to play and we go to Cathedral Cove which is part of where there have been all kind of movies and films shot around Cathedral Co. I'm thinking The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the scenes is there, but so beautiful, beautiful scenic. Um, and he sets up his tripod, and he's like, let's take some pictures. And so we're over literally where the water's like lapping up on the shore, and he's like, okay, smile. And I smile, and like he gets on one knee, and the, the camera captures the proposal. And there were a couple of people over off to the side that I guess have been watching it the whole time. This woman comes up. She's crying. She's just telling me how beautiful it was to watch. And, yeah, it was a great story. What a story. I know. I can just picture John carrying this tripod around this whole time knowing and what he's going to do. Yeah. And the ring. You know, he had called um, the airport beforehand because he was like, look, I've got the ring in my backpack because I don't want to put it in the luggage that's going yeah. you know, under the plane. So. You know, like, if she's walking behind me, is she going to see the ring in my bag as it goes through the, you know, he's, he, he, he vetted everything, everything. And then we had this enormous satellite phone, like you would see on, like, Saved by the Bell or something that, yeah. you know, we used to call home, tell everybody the good news. That's great. a great story. It's a great story. John Hogan made it happen. All right, I have two more lightning round questions. Okay. Here's the first one. Among the changes in technology that you've seen in your lifetime, which one has been the most significant? I think the the iPhone and and social media and all that comes with that. I think that now when I teach my undergrad students, they don't know a time where there wasn't a smartphone. So to even talk to them about having to dial a phone and having one line shared in a household, they're like, what do you mean line? Like, what is that? And call waiting and three-way calling. Um, <laughs> and none of this, I mean, I can't even imagine going through middle and high school having social media. I cannot imagine. No, I can't imagine. Um, obviously, we'll have to navigate that one day with James Boyce, but parents right now of, of kids of that age, like all the power to you. Yeah, I would say like smartphones and social media that come with it. And all that came with it. Right. A blessing and a curse, right? Because yeah. there's there have been a lot of a lot of events have transpired that maybe we wouldn't be aware of if it weren't for someone standing by with a smartphone or, you know, a critical mass being developed around a, an important issue because of a group on social media. And yeah. A book, a movie, or something that you've been streaming? 
from one of those, what would you recommend? Okay, so with the recent passing of the Queen, I've gone back to The Crown on Netflix. It is so well done. And I also, when I watch it, I feel like, so the first season of that came out before Aunt Pat passed away, Patsy Hogan. She and I just had so many rich conversations around that. And, of course, she had done all the research around, you know, the music and how well researched the series was itself. And I can't help but feel like she's she's right there watching it with me because mm-hmm. um, I think she would just be enthralled by all of the the pomp and circumstance and everything around around the the queen's passing. So that's that's been the recent fix. Yeah, it it's incredibly well done. I mean, whatever you think about the monarchy, like go watch it. Apparently the queen herself used to watch it on Sundays. Really? I read yesterday. How about that? Yeah. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank and you for inviting me. Yeah, and sharing your story, sharing part of your background. Thanks right. so much. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for listening to our conversation. As you continue with your day-to-day, I encourage you to take time and reflect on this question. Who has been a formative catalyst for you in your spiritual life? This is the FBC Athens podcast, Open to Explore, featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. Listen next week as another member joins me for conversations about church, God, the pandemic, and more.